Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this specialist series, Explore How to Plan an Expedition, a series created for the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. For those of you who don't listen to the Adventure Podcast regularly, I'm Matt Pycroft and I'm the Vice President Membership at the Society. I'm also a filmmaker, photographer, remote location specialist, and I've been going on expeditions under the banners of adventure, exploration, science, conservation and discovery for over 15 years. In this first episode, I speak with Dr. James Burrell and Dr. Katie Willis about how to plan a field research project. They go into detail about their own experiences of getting into the world of field science and research and explore and explain what makes a good field research project, how to approach others about getting involved in their work, and we also touch on ethics and responsibilities. Really, this episode is an introduction to the ideas we'll explore over the following nine episodes, so do keep an eye out for those as they get released. And finally, if you're looking for support with planning your own expedition or field research project, then head to rgs.org to begin the journey. Right, let's get started with episode one of Explore, how to plan an expedition. So let's start at the start. Please, can you introduce yourself, tell me who you are and what you do, and maybe give us a little bit of background and context on your expedition experience and fieldwork experience. My name's Dr. James Burrell. I'm a research leader at Royal Botanic Gardens Q, and I'm a scientist. So I'm essentially interested in doing research that helps us address global challenges. Um, Perhaps as a scientist, I'm either very lucky or very unlucky to live at a time where we face global climate change, global biodiversity loss, major global challenges, but we also have tools that we've never had before to try and address them. And my work is about collaborating with lots of different people, lots of different expertise to try and come up with some solutions to those challenges. My first expedition was to Madagascar um, and I was very naive, unrealistic, um, kind of cocky um, and that completely changed my view of the world. Uh, And then I've been very lucky to um, go somewhat of an amateur to interesting places and then increasingly as a professional. Most of my work is in Africa and Madagascar. And now, Katie, please, could you introduce yourself? So I'm Katie Willis and I'm a professor of human geography at Royal Holloway, University of London. I probably wouldn't use the expedition's word because I'm a human geographer and generally we use the fieldwork word instead. Um, I've done lots of urban fieldwork in Latin America um, and in East and Southeast Asia. Um, And I've also done work collaborating with physical geographers and archaeologists in the Andes. Um, I've led uh, undergraduate field courses in uh, Africa, most specifically in Malawi and Kenya. And then I've done uh, lots of kind of one day, short, few day sort of field courses in the UK with undergraduate students. And I think at the start of this conversation, it's really important for us to differentiate between field research and expeditions. Could you explain what they both are and whether or not there's any crossover? Well, I think there's a real kind of overlap Um, clearly, and some people use them interchangeably, which is fine. Um, But I think for me, expedition kind of implies, if you like, a kind of self-contained group of people going through a landscape to uh, maybe get to a site where they will be doing research or collecting information along the way. 
Um, obviously collaborating with uh, people in the area. But for me, that's the kind of idea about an expedition. Whereas for field work, um, it may be multi-sited, but in a sense, you're going to a place, you're going to be setting up, uh, set up there, and then doing your research from that, that particular location um, in lots of different kind of ways. So for me, that's more of the the kind of distinction. Expedition is that is that kind of it's got that kind of moving through the landscape kind of idea. A field research project, to me, is that the goal, uh, the thing you're trying to understand or collect or find, is above or higher priority than anything else in the expedition. So I, I wouldn't think of myself as particularly tough or strong or or, you know, I would only, I could only suffer some of the hardships of expeditions if I felt like the point was much bigger than just me. Otherwise, I'd definitely give up much before. Um, that's essentially what I'd say. Uh, so how do you define a field expedition? An expedition is about increasing our knowledge. It's not about just personal gain. It's about collecting information that is needed beyond just your own purposes. And so what do you think makes a good field research project? A good field research project is ambitious but achievable. And it's going to deliver a clear output. You know, there's, it, it can be fantastic to think, well, let's go and do a biodiversity survey. But you have to understand all these things have biases unless you're going for years you know, what tax are you going to look at? It's much better to try and focus on something that addresses a, a key question or an aim. If you're just starting out, I don't think there's anything wrong with not knowing exactly what some of those aims might be. But as you get later and if you want to become more professional and more serious about it and apply for larger amounts of funding, then you need to have identified a, um, a goal or something you need to understand that is not only important to you, but it's important to science, it's important to the community, it may be important to the host country where you're working, uh, it maybe addresses a big knowledge gap. Um, so you don't have to worry about all those components when you're starting out, but as you try to take on larger challenges, those are the things you might need to think about. And Katie, what do you think makes a good field research project? I've been thinking about this because obviously I've been doing my own field research for... 35 years but I think I've supervised over 200 undergraduate dissertation projects and about 30 PhD projects so I've seen quite a lot of research projects in my time um, and I think as a research project you really want to have that that um, thing about kind of worthwhile and feasible research questions. It's a research project. There are lots of other reasons why you might be doing an expedition or other kinds of travelling, but for a research project, I think you need that um, thing about what is it that you're trying to find out. Um, and of course, it has to be feasible. Uh, so uh, one of the challenges is always trying to kind of make sure that your project is of a suitable size, uh, so trying to find out about the impact of climate change on a whole country is probably not going to be feasible if you are doing an independent piece of research. Um, so you need to kind of think about the kind of size of it. You need to think about, is it a question that's actually worth asking? 
uh, because sometimes, particularly with students, they'll say, oh, I've been reading, you know, I've been doing lots of reading. I'm really excited about this topic and nobody has done this particular focus. And then I say to them, okay, so why do you think that might be? Uh, it might be because actually it's an emerging area, so actually it's really exciting and we should look at that. It might be because actually it's impossible to do, or it might be that it's not a particularly helpful question. It's the, it's the so what question. So there's all kinds of different reasons why you might set up a, a kind of research question, but that's the starting point. You need to think about what is it that we want to, to find out. And obviously that can... You can tweak that as you do more thinking about it, more exploration of the literature, talking to people and so on. But actually, that's the kind of starting point. Um, sometimes people start thinking about research because it's something they're interested in. They may be working with an organisation or with a community that wants to find out something. So you're, in a sense, you're responding to a local request. But it's got to have some kind of research grounding. Um, then it becomes the feasibility thing. So not just, you know, how big is it, but how long will it take? How long do you have? How much money do you have? Is it using methods that you can actually do? You know, do you need to speak a language? Do you need to use particular kinds of kits? All of that kind of feasibility uh, stuff. And sometimes people may have this amazing idea, but it will just take five years and they've only got one year. So it's not a feasible project. Um, I think research projects clearly need to be safe. They need to be safe for the people doing it. They need to be safe for the people uh, that you're interacting with. Um, and they obviously need to be safe for the other living things and the environment. And I guess the answer to this next question is potentially quite subjective, but how much do you think it needs to be something that's going to benefit the world versus nurturing your personal curiosity? I probably wouldn't do an expedition that I didn't want to do. So I think all the, the great thing about being a scientist or working in research is that really it's, it's, it's your own curiosity, okay? You might be guided a bit by your funder or a bit by what's the trendy topic at the moment, but essentially science is about discovering things that you're interested in. And if you get to involve that with expeditions, discover something you're interested in in a remarkable place, um, that may be very remote, may be poorly known, what could be more exciting? Um, and the thing I would say about expeditions is it adds a purpose beyond yourself, right? The more you know about a place, the more fascinating everything is. If you walk through a rainforest without knowing anything about it, it's a remarkable landscape. But if you understand parasitic plants, succession in secondary forests, if you know something about the natural history of some of the animals that live there, then all of a sudden every single facet of it is fascinating. And an expedition is about learning. And I think, you know, you could, you could sit in one spot in a rainforest for a month and keep learning and seeing new things. It's just a, it's just a remarkable, remarkable experience. For me, it matters now that the expeditions we do matter to the world. Um, that may not have been, may have been less the case in the past, but I think the moral responsibility is there now. That's not to say that everything you do has to be like that. So I still spend my own money going and doing things that I find interesting. In fact, you know, 
a holiday for me is to to go to some remarkable protected area and try and see wildlife and I spend my money and hopefully that money goes to the local communities who bear the burden of having that protected area on their doorstep. Expeditions are a little bit different, I think, and if you want to get funding for your expedition, I think now and for the next few decades they they have to chip away at trying to address global challenges. But there's a lot of ways of doing that. I think that it's fine for someone to say, I am really interested in this topic and I want to do it. In a sense, if you're not interested in it, you really shouldn't be doing it. You know, it's kind of life's too short, basically. Um, So you have to have some investment in it. Um, It might be an investment in it because it's your complete passion. It might be an investment in it because you see it as a stepping stone to something else. Um, But you need to have some kind of interest in it. So it's fine to be excited. In fact, it's important to be excited about what you want to do. Um, I think in terms of um, is it okay to be just driven by that? In a sense, it's fine to be driven by that. But particularly in geography, so much of what we look at is because we're interested in the challenges in the world. So therefore, there's also going to be that thing about, well, I'm really interested in this because it's a really important issue to my community, to environments that I care about, to different kind of um, sectors of society, the built environment, heritage, whatever. Um, So that's absolutely fine. Clearly, the ability of any individual research project to make a change on those important things depends completely on, you know, you can't expect an undergraduate dissertation project to, you know, solve climate change. Uh, so that's that's fine. But I think it's then more about how you do the project um, that is important in terms of the ethics of it. Okay, so how do you go about finding what the world needs? So I'm going to say lots of things about what I think an expedition should be like and how a field research project should be designed. But I think it's important to know that me and probably everyone else on your podcast has made all the mistakes there are to make and done th- or planned things that turn out to be pointless or don't get published or the data never sees the light of day or were wildly ambitious or silly. And for every project we have done, we've probably got five that never happened. So I think that's fine. But how do you decide what really does need to be done, well, I would get down to the the kind of core examples. So, for example, Google a website called GBIF, the Global Biodiversity Information Facility. That's an online database of a huge number, I think it's something like 400 million uh, biodiversity records collected around the world. There are squares on that map that don't have any, for example, bits of Siberia. Um, lots in the oceans if you happen to be a sailor. Uh, on those squares that have very few, you could do a lot worse than just go to one of those places and record what you see, right? That's like the simplest possible way to think about it. Another totally different way of going about it. The world recently agreed the global biodiversity framework. Uh, just over 20 targets that we need to try and achieve by 2030. You could do a lot worse than read through those targets see which one excites you the most, think what you could do to help chip away at the knowledge. I think a big mistake would be to think you can solve a big problem with one expedition. All science is, is standing on the shoulders of thousands and thousands of people before you and just chiseling away a tiny, tiny little bit of new knowledge. Uh, And that 
cumulatively makes a big difference. I think what you should do is you should look at what organizations are producing. Are they producing reports or data? Are they making that freely available? Are they working with okay, in-country partners if it's abroad or with long-term organizations if it's in the UK? What are they doing? Um, serve an apprenticeship, get experience with other people. You don't have to do it all off your own back to start with. I think it's a hundred times better to contribute to something that's been going a long time and will go long after you're gone than it is to try and start something from scratch which will then die a sad and slow death when you lose interest in it. I speak from experience and I'm sure everyone else on this podcast has done the same thing. So be a, be a contributor. You know, uh, If someone else has had a great idea, support it doesn't have to be your idea. I, I've said before that, you know, I, I, maybe I've had my own ideas. If someone else came along and stole, inverted comma, one of those ideas, but made a fantastic success of it, the measure of whether you're comfortable with yourself is whether you applaud them and, and hope it carries on and is successful. You know, we want, in conservation, we want our ideas to be taken up and to have an impact. It should matter less whose idea it was. Um, and that takes time to be comfortable with, but that's what we should all be working towards. And Katie, to what extent do you think we should look at what's come before and aim to build on the shoulders of past projects? I think that doing something completely new is nigh on impossible. Um, you know, I th- you know, even kind of physicists dealing with like the nature of matter are building on existing knowledge. Um, so you're always you're always going to be building on something, whether it be existing knowledge about particular environmental or social processes, or particular methods, or particular kind of um, ways of doing things. You're always going to be building on existing knowledge. Um, what a good research project will do will th- would be basically thinking about well. What am I going to be adding to that existing knowledge? So the point is, you know, that kind of, you mentioned it, standing on the shoulders of. So you do want to be standing on the shoulders. You don't want to be basically sitting on the floor next to. You know, you want to be doing that. You want to be kind of saying, you know, it's always an idea of is thinking about how we can uh, improve our understanding, expand our understanding. The research project may not do that. You know, research projects sometimes don't, do what you think they would want to do, what you would hope they would want to do, but you should start off with that aspiration um, of kind of doing that. So it's not going to be completely new. Um, it's thinking about, okay, incrementally, how will this add to what we understand, what do we know, what we might do about it? Yeah. I'm very aware this podcast is probably going to be listened to by a broad range of different people. And I'm just curious as to whether or not you think this kind of research is just the preserve of professors. Most undergraduates don't do research projects that are completely path-breaking, you know, and that's not what you would expect them to do. It's an undergraduate piece of work. But they can, um, you know, apply existing ideas to new kind of case studies, which can be incredibly useful for expanding that kind of knowledge. And we have lots of examples across... Um, across uh, universities of undergraduate dissertations being then used by local communities, being turned into research papers, sometimes with the assistance of of an academic member of staff. So that kind of works really kind of well in terms of thinking about how that information gets out there. 
But there's also the idea that, you know, all of us who are doing research started off not doing much research. So it's also partly that you get better as a researcher by doing it and you have to start somewhere. And so you start doing small projects as school students, as school pupils, for example, or as undergraduate students, and that will then build. So then you can get your capacity to then do research projects either in academia or in a different field, depending on what you go into. And so how do you go about guaranteeing that our findings are useful or at least giving us the best possible chance of making sure they're useful? Yeah, I don't think you can get, you can never guarantee it because you can have the best laid plans and actually, you know, governments change, organisations shift their priorities, COVID happens, things get in the way. Um, But I do think you need to think, you need to think about who, who would be appropriate to look at my research findings and in what format should they be? Um, and again, for undergraduates, it may be that actually what they want to do is if they've worked with a community organisation or a, something else, they want to kind of do a short report to present to that organisation, say, this is what I found. I hope it's useful. Thank you very much for helping me. Um, but if you want to kind of think about having wider influence, who is it that you're trying to kind of influence? If it's policymakers, they're not going to read a research report. They need something short, snappy you know, with some data in it, preferably numbers or infographics um, to kind of communicate that. Um, If you're trying to kind of get sort of uh, public understanding, then things like videos, uh, social media, all of that kind of stuff, it can be really good. Though obviously you have to think carefully about what you're showing uh, and that you're not kind of uh, infringing on the agreements that you've made with participants or uh, showing showing environments that you don't necessarily want to, to kind of reveal. And one of the big questions I think we'll probably explore over the course of this entire series is, do you think you have to go abroad? I think one of the, one of the great things about the UK is that it's one of the most well-studied places in the world, which is great, doesn't mean there aren't still things to discover, sometimes having an enormous kind of reservoir of information allows you to ask really even more interesting questions. It's also one of the most degraded uh, countries in the world in terms of our biodiversity. So again, if we want to think about, you know, bending the curve of biodiversity loss and tackling climate change and how that interacts with people and their livelihoods, then yes, you know, it's a a fantastic place to, to do those kind of things. But I would say that I feel that sort of UK nature conservation sometimes is far too inwards thinking. You know, we 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 worry about things that I think we would benefit from some perspective. You know, uh, crows, you know, killing crows on RSPB reserves and uh, reintroductions of beavers and badger numbers and all these kind of things. Meanwhile, people in East Africa are living alongside elephants and lions. Um, uh, Rainfall patterns are changing because of tropical deforestation and people don't have the capacity to just adapt. I, I I think just global perspective would be really valuable for UK nature conservation. And sometimes I think we have to accept that 
money spent internationally can go an awful lot further than it can in the UK. What would be the single best thing we could do for biodiversity? It would be to probably spend all of the UK's conservation funds internationally, where it goes a lot further, where there's a lot more biodiversity. But of course, people want their own backyards to be nice. Um, as a country, we spend a pitifully small amount internationally. We're a rich, fortunate country. We should be spending far more supporting places that are actually high in biodiversity, because we're not. If we wanted to be selfish, we could just spend it on UK overseas territories, which hold most of the UK, inverted commas, biodiversity, but we don't. And are there any new ways of doing field research so that we could just maybe drop in and leave and maybe go back later? So in terms of like a long-term monitoring program or working closely with local communities? Yeah, all kinds of stuff. It's kind of like, um, you know, for a start, there are certain things that you don't need to even travel anywhere to do anymore in terms of the kind of mapping and imaging kind of stuff. So actually, you know, where you used to have to go out and kind of, you know, measure things on the ground, you don't have to do that anymore. Clearly, you may want to, you can use your mapping to kind of see the nature of a city or a particular environment and then go and ground truth it and do more in-depth work. But all of that kind of stuff, technology is great. Um, but yeah, monitoring different kinds of sensors, um, you know, uh, working with local communities, local organisations um, to help develop a research project. You know, you can kind of share that on the lovely computer as opposed to everybody having to be in the same room. I suppose like many things, uh, the theory here is very simple, but the practicalities are often harder. How do you actually go about finding these people that you'd like to work with on the ground to partner with? And do you need permission? I'll do the permission thing first, if you like, because if that's, in a sense, that's the easiest. So um, permission, it depends, it depends what you mean by permission. Clearly, if you are going to a different country than the country in which you reside and have your passport, you're going to have to get permission to go into that country. Uh, if you're going to do research, it is usual that you go through the appropriate research permit um, permission system. Different countries deal with that really, really differently. Some just basically say, if you're coming for a short period of time, you can come on a tourist visa. Others are saying you need a local partner and all of that kind of stuff. So that can then make it a much bigger uh, endeavour and something that often undergraduate students wouldn't be able to do. Um, because obviously for a local partner, a local partner is going to see, well, what's, what are you bringing that's going to be helpful? Um, Yes, it might be expertise, uh, it might be access to equipment, it might be funding, you know, because clearly if they're hosting you as a, as a researcher, uh, you may be expected to pay a fee. Or it may be that, you, that um, there is some, a project that they are developing and want um, assistance with, different ways of doing it. I think it's much harder for undergraduates to do that as individuals uh, than kind of groups of, of undergraduates. So often undergraduates will work together and go and go to existing projects to work alongside them. Unless, of course, they have existing connections. Some people are kind of lucky when they kind of just send emails into the ether. Um, but generally, people aren't. Um, so it's then trying to think about uh, if you're at a university in the UK, talking to colleagues there. Obviously, the RGS has got great kind of, um, kind of databases of, of different kind of organisations and field centres around the world that you can then kind of use to kind of try and get contacts. Um, 
you know, we have lots and lots of uh, people who are doing research in their home communities, even though they're studying or working elsewhere. They have kind of connections. Um, but it's... I suppose for me, it's that thing, it's, it's, it's one of those really kind of tricky moments where people are enthusiastic about a project and think, of course, they're going to be useful to a local community or a local organisation. And in fact, they're not. And you have to basically be humble and take it on the chin. And it doesn't matter how experienced you are. Fundamentally, you are asking a lot to say, hello, you don't know me. I'm really interested in this. Would it be okay if I come and, you know, participate in your research project or collaborate with you or something like that? That's a big ask. I wrote emails and emails to people saying, I'd like to do this. Have you got any advice about that? Have you got an opportunity I could help with this? And I wouldn't be here if kind and generous people hadn't given me their time. And when I look back and I think now how busy I am, the fact that people took time when... I was just an undergraduate to advise me and help me. And I would say that coming to somewhere like Explore at the RGS, asking for help from the RGS is a, is a, is a great place to start. I would give a couple of tips about how to approach people. Be concise, okay? Don't <laughs> write really long emails. It's okay to give a very polite reminder if, if you haven't heard from someone in a couple of weeks because it may have just got lost. Be specific about what you want to do. If you'd like to, to uh, you know, if you want to develop a project, have you identified some funding sources? You know, show that you've done your homework, show that you're not just wasting someone's time and be considerate of the time it will take them to reply to you. Um, but there's nothing wrong with, with writing to people and I'm very lucky to be completely content with what I do now. So I sort of consider that a success. And and I I think a lot of people want to pay back the favour of the support they had when they were young. The other thing you said was about timeliness. And I would also see now as a as an amazing opportunity. If you work in biodiversity or climate change or conservation or anything now, you work at it in the time when you can make the biggest difference anyone's ever been able to make in human history. And what we do now in the next few years and in the next few decades will quite literally impact how life on Earth looks for the next 10, 15 million years. You know, if we wipe out major lineages now, they, they'll take millennia to evolve replacements and so on. And so... I really think in a couple of hundred years, if we're still around, people will look back at the decisions people made now. And it's not about ego. It's just about there's a lot of satisfaction in life doing work that feels like it's worth doing. And I think a lot of people are looking for sort of meaningful lives. Maybe that's something in us that we look for. And obviously I'm deeply biased, but working in conservation, it couldn't be more important. And conservation now is so much about supporting people, not just wildlife. You know, you have to support people and their livelihoods and their ways of life if, if they're going to be able to in turn support cons conservation. So it's a great opportunity. There's never been a more interesting time to be involved and never a bigger challenge than the one we face now. Um, so we're all lucky to be alive, I think. And so how much of this do you think it's actually about kind of offering to help 
So saying, um, I've been given a £3,000 grant, or I would argue more importantly, I've got six weeks of time free. Is there anything you or your institution need me to do? Can I go and do something for you? That's fantastic. I would love it if 5% of emails were as constructive as that. That's perfect. If you've done that, I would say to get your uh, £3,000, you might have had to have had a little bit more substance to what you can do. So there's nothing wrong with saying, I plan to apply for £3,000. I have six weeks of time. I'm interested in X, Y, Z. I've read your work on this, or I note your organisation is interested in X, Y, and Z. How can I contribute? That would immediately get my attention. Even if you know, and then even if you face many challenges and don't manage to produce anything that's going to change the world, that's a really constructive way to go about um, looking to support conservation. Um, ten, ten out of ten, gold star, I'd give you for that email. And what about partnerships or partnering with an existing expedition or finding partners for your expedition, to what extent do you think it's actually about looking at your specific set of skills and finding somebody or a team or a place or an institution that has a gap in their skill set that could use you? I mean, on any really challenging expedition, you have people that are much more um, practical and maybe more interested in the logistics and where we're going and keeping everyone safe and having a plan. And then people like me who might, not really want to think about anything except the frogs or the plants or the birds. And and they actually make a really great partnership. So if you have a particular interest, come and meet people who maybe have an interest slightly different from yours and put something together together. You know, that sounds absolutely perfect to me because, you know, you can't have all of those skills in just one person. So those partnerships are really valuable. And I think... You don't have to be a, a scientist to try and address these challenges. Climate change and biodiversity loss is going to affect every facet. What we need more, really, than a whole bunch of explorers who are good communicators or scientists who are good at research is people that work in Canary Wharf and the city and internationally in New York or wherever. We need those people to care and be environmentalists uh, and be knowledgeable about climate change and know about biodiversity. I would love to just be able to pluck individuals out of, you know, society and take them on a research expedition and show them why things are important. Just the same as taking those people on on challenging expeditions. So if you're listening to this and you're not early career and you're not thinking about doing research or you're not honing your polar or mountaineering skills or something, that's fine. Um, I think, for, for example, how useful would it be to have someone who understands the corporate world on a, on a research expedition so they can actually share what they learn about the process? That's one of the reasons why citizen science is so valuable. Those people, you know, conservationists, we're all guilty of spending all our time talking to each other and we all understand what each other's talking about. We all agree it's urgent. We're all frustrated that nothing seems to make any progress because we're all in a bit of an echo chamber of talking to each other. Um, and so if you're not, if all of this is new to you, then welcome and come and get involved. What do you think are the ethical considerations when it comes to planning an overseas research project? So I think when I say, when we, when we talk about overseas, if we kind of say that, uh, let's assume that 
the researcher is going to travel to somewhere that's not their home country. Um, and I think part of the big kind of um, the big kind of debates are what can somebody from outside bring that the people who are there already don't know, can't do, don't have the capacity for, and why should they help? Okay. Um, Clearly, it's got whole different kind of resonances if we're thinking about keep people coming from the global north to the global south, you know, long traditions of, of kind of exploitation and, and kind of so on. Um, so I think we just need to be really, really aware of additional kind of challenges around that. Um, so the ethics of it is... is, is thinking carefully about what that research relationship might look like, what might that research par partnership might look like, um, rather than saying, hello, I'm coming, I'm doing this, can you help? And basically presenting it almost like you're demanding a service. Um, and that's not collaborative research, it's not kind of ethical research. Um, then, of course, thinking about well, what kind of questions are you asking? Who's being involved? What is happening to that information? You know, clearly if you're doing anything that involves environmental disruption, are you taking samples? You know, I've worked with archaeologists. Clearly there's a massive ethical issue about what happens about any artefacts. Um, so all of that is, is part of the whole kind of ethical uh, discussion. Okay, so give me an insight into what you think an exciting field research project would be. Maybe at undergraduate level or a little bit higher up. Just like a specific example. Something that you would think, wow, that's exciting or innovative or interesting. So I suppose the, the things that I get excited about in terms of recent undergraduate work and also kind of master's uh, work has been students kind of drawing on their own experiences of everyday life or their experiences in particular environments. And it goes back to this thing about going into communities and doing research as a, as a kind of outsider, in inverted commas. And I think as geographical research, um, at least in the UK, has become more, the population has become more diverse. Our student body is more diverse. Our staff are becoming more diverse. Maybe not as quick as we would like, but um, it is. Um, and I think the kind of research that students are doing from coming from their own particular perspectives within their own communities has just been absolutely inspiring. So absolutely some really, really amazing stuff around experiences of uh, life in particular communities in big cities, uh, you know, and so on. Just just kind of drawing on their own experiences. And it's, and it's partly because they're really passionate about that, but it's also because you can tell from the way, the, the kind of information they collect and the way they analyse it, that it's coming from a position where they've really got insights that other people wouldn't have been able to get. And that is really important. Um, doesn't mean to say other people's insights are not, are not important, but it's actually you just get a very, very different perspective. And that's kind of really um, exciting to me. And what if it turns out you don't enjoy it? I think there's nothing wrong with doing all kinds of field research projects and going... I, I once did an expedition where there was a geologist and, and I really liked the idea of liking rocks. 
you know, and I'm sure that there is, you know, some fantastic stuff to know. And I really wanted to, to get a lot out of it, but I just found that particular topic quite dull. And I, I hope someone will one day school me and I will deepen my appreciation for geology. But it's fine to do things and think, do you know what? Wasn't very into that. And probably finally, I guess, what advice would you give to somebody who really wanted to plan their first overseas expedition? I guess they might be self-funded or they might be applying for a grant. And could you give us some examples of the sorts of things they could do that would impress you or surprise you? Just off the top of my head, wonderful things you could do. For example, uh, if you Google EDGE, it's a program by ZSL, Zoological Society of London, stands for Evolutionarily Distinct and Globally Endangered. And it has a, a hit list of the sort of weirdest multiplied by the rarest species on Earth. Uh, number one is Attenborough's long-nosed echidna, which hasn't been seen in, in decades. Um, there's just, it's just a treasure trove of weird, cool stuff you didn't know existed that we know very little about. Pick one of those that maybe not one of the top ones. They might be really hard. Pick one a bit lower down. Um, think about how you could contribute to knowing something about that animal. Always work with a local partner. Um, be constructive with those emails and talk to whoever may already work on it. Look at how you can combine and support. No one likes these people in science that are territorial about particular topics or species. Um, look at how you can be a contributor. You could do a lot worse than try to find something out about one of those species. That might be very hard, so maybe have a sort of a sub-goal or something that's a little bit more achievable, maybe some other common species that live in that area that you could collect some information. So that would be absolutely fantastic. Um, go on GBIF, like I mentioned earlier, Global Biodiversity Information Framework, uh, Information Facility, and find a place where there's very little records. Don't say you're the first person to ever go there or... Um, you know, those kind of things. Just just go and learn and collect information, take those photos, upload that information to GBIF or iNaturalist or one of those other fora. Um, that would be fantastic. Uh, if you are very fortunate to have had a university education and to have skills in any particular field, then think about working with a partner on an expedition, talk to them about what they need to collect. I'm very lucky to have worked with the Oman Botanic Garden and we provide some of the sort of infrastructure and the energy to do an expedition and they tell us where to go and what really needs to be collected and identified. Um, that's a great partnership. Offer training uh, if you can. Remember that you might be able to offer training in some things and you'll get schooled in many, many other things. But if you have a particular expertise, ask them if that's something that would be helpful and try to offer it in a, in a sort of collaborative way. And remember that it's what the outcome there is, is not just that you've passed on some information, is that you've both learned from each other. Um, so those are three just quick ideas off the top of my head, but be, be sensitive of people's time, try not to waste people's time. Thanks for listening. For more information on how to get started with planning your own expedition or field research project, head to rgs.org. This podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft, produced and edited by Laura J. Cock, and is a Terra Incognita publishing production for RGS with IBG. 